This passage of scripture should be very familiar to us. It has been read and repeated in this study often, and it is the text of scripture which uh, that Puritan John Owen used as a springboard to open up the doctrine of the mortification of sin. If you come to verse 12 and follow along with me, you'll find these words. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For as many as are led by the spirit of God, These are the sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified Together. As we return to our study this morning of John Owen's treatise on the mortification of sin in believers, let me remind you that Dr. Owen believed that much preparatory work must be done in order to successfully weaken the power of any nagging remaining corruption. Without due preparation, sin will be dealt with slightly. Or not at all. We took up our study last week by looking at chapter 12 of Owen's work where he discusses the need of genuine humility and sin withering meditation. What kind of meditation dries up and kills pride? Well, listen to Owen. Use and exercise thyself to such meditations as may serve to fill thee at all times with self-abasement and thoughts of thine own vileness. As we stated last week, that's a very unpopular direction. But this direction consists primarily of two things. And Owen says, first of all, be much in thoughtfulness of the excellency of the, and the majesty of God and thine infinite, inconceivable distance from him. Two, think much of thine unacquaintedness with him. This activity, says Owen, strikes deep at the root of any indwelling sin. Remember, brethren, every sin has pride at its root. To think, speak, or do anything according to the nature we receive from our first parents and not according to the revealed will of God is sinful pride. Think about your actions and what you do and what you say and what you think. If they don't spring from a desire to glorify God and according to his precepts and his, the examples that are in Scripture and the commandments that are in Scripture, they flow from our selfish desires and what we desire to do. Let it be known that pride is at the root. Such a disposition of thought Word and deed is an echo and imitation of King Pharaoh, who said, 
who is the Lord that I should obey his voice? Exodus 5, verse 2. However, the humble child of God cries with King David, who says, also keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. Let them not rule over me. Then I will be blameless and I shall be acquitted of great transgressions. Psalm 19, verse 13. Beloved, always keep our memory verse. You do remember we had a memory verse, right? You do remember we had a memory verse. Okay. Well, we repeat it this morning. And you'll be quizzed before Pastor Greg stands up. The pride of man will be humbled. And the loftiness of men will be abased. And the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. Only God deserves to be exalted high and lifted up. It's Isaiah 2.17. He will be exalted because he is supreme. He is supreme in greatness. He's supreme in authority. He's supreme in sovereignty. He is the regal, lofty royalty of heaven and earth. The scriptures tell us the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and they that dwell therein, Psalm 24. The godly man, Stephen, who was full of faith and power, proclaimed this to his stiff-necked hearers. He says, however, the Most High does not dwell in temples made with hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place for my rest? Owen says God's majesty is excellent. God is not just a God of majesty, but he's a God of excellent majesty. His majesty is transcendent, is magnificent, is incomparable. We must ponder that lofty reality of the pure holiness of God. And then consider how so very low and beneath that we are. What Owen is striking at here, he's trying to get us to get a view of God, much like what Isaiah saw when he saw the Lord high and lifted up in the temple. And he fell down smitten because he recognized he was a man of unclean lips and he dwelt amongst the people with unclean lips. He understood his vileness. He understood his lowliness. And this sight of God will help us deal faithfully with our sin. Therefore, as finite beings, we can only experience the backside of God, such as was that case with that man Moses. Do you remember that passage in Exodus 33? It talks about Moses Only seeing the backside of God, God's choice servant, a man who loved God, a man who served God. The Bible says he was the meekest man on the earth. Exodus 33, verse 23 says, then I will take away my hand and you shall see my backside of my back. But my face shall not be seen. Owen says we only see a portion, a small smidget of the reality in the in the in the fullness of God. 
God has revealed much of himself to us in his word. But even what he reveals to us in his, in his word is only but a smidget, if we can say that in a reverential way, of God's glory and God's immense holiness. So Owen argues that even the most eminent saints who experience communion, sweet communion with God, do yet in this life know but a very little of him and his glory. Now, I'm not sure if Owen actually encountered objections or he anticipated objections, but he does answer some objections to his statement concerning the littleness of our knowledge of God. Because some might argue. And he writes, one might argue that Moses was under the law and wrapped in the darkness of types and shadowy institutions. But that now, under the glorious shining of the gospel in which God has brought life and immortality to light, we see him much more clearly. Now we see him as he is, and now also his face, not like Moses, who only saw his back parts. So Owen addresses that objection, and he answers it this way. I acknowledge that there is a vast and almost inconceivable difference between what we know now after God has spoken in his son and what was known by the saints under the law. Even though their eyes were as good, sharp and clear as ours. And their faith and spiritual understanding, not at all behind ours. The object of their faith was as glorious to them as it is to us. Yet our day is more clear than theirs. The clouds are blown away and scattered. The shadows of the night are gone and fleet away. The sun has risen and the means of sight is made more clear, imminent and clear than formerly. I'll give you that, he says. We have a clearer view than our Old Testament brethren. But he says, but consider this. That particular sight which Moses had of God in Exodus 34 was a gospel sight. What Moses experienced and what Moses saw was a gospel sight, a sight of God as gracious. Exodus 34, we read these words, and the Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Brother, those are gospel words. Those are words of, of, of great delight and joy to have one's sins forgiven, to have one's sins put away. And that's what Moses received as he as God passed before him. Yet it is called his back parts. That is, but low and inferior in comparison with his excellencies and perfections. What Moses saw is not being compared to what we see. What Moses saw is being compared to what God really is in his full essence and glory and power. And what we see should be compared to the same. Moses 
So Moses saw this gospel light, this gospel sight of God, but it was only the backside, a small portion. Owen is showing us that the knowledge that we have of God, he's striking at our pride. Lest we think all the things we've learned and all the things we know about God will puff us up, which will render us ineffective in the battle to fight sin because pride must be dealt with. So he's laboring this point that we deal with our pride, that we deal with it to get a good glimpse of who God is and who we are in his presence will humble us. He says, the Apostle Paul exalts the gospel light above that of the law, saying that the veil causing darkness is taken away. And we now see with unveiled face the glory of the Lord, 2 Corinthians 3.18. But how does he say that we see it? As in a mirror. How is that? Clearly or perfectly? No. He tells us that we see in a mirror dimly. 1 Corinthians 13, 12. How short do we come to the truth of things? We are looking into a looking glass where we see only obscure images of things and not the things themselves. This is how he assesses our knowledge. We see by or through this glass. It is in darkness and obscurity. Paul speaking of himself, who was much more clear sighted than any now living tells us that he saw in part. He saw but the back parts of heavenly things and compares all the knowledge he has obtained of God to the knowledge of a child. So you read, we read that in, in verse 11 of 1 Corinthians 13. Paul talks about when I was a child, I, I thought as a child, and, and the knowledge we have, this side of glory is only that of a child. It may be true knowledge, but it's not full knowledge, an accurate knowledge. I remember, uh, there are not many things that this old brain remembers, but um, uh, there were some pictures here the other day that kind of gave some flashbacks and reminded me of when I was a little guy. I remember when I was young, there was a magazine in our house on the coffee table, and it had this caption on it. It said, some man is breaking up Pat Boone's home. And I love to draw. And so I drew a picture of what I read, my understanding of what that meant. So I drew a big house on the hill and a man angry coming up the hill with a big hatchet in his hand. He's going to tear up and break down Pat Boone's home. Well, now that I look back on it, that's not exactly what that meant. But I thought as a child. And what Owen is saying is that we think as children when it comes to these things, even with this inscripturated revelation that has been given to us by the Holy Spirit, we still only see the back parts or the backside of God. Owen is painstakingly, I say, going through these things, trying to share with us that God is great. He uses the illustration of the Queen of Sheba. She had heard of the magnificence and the, and the, and the glories of the kingdom and the king himself. 
Solomon in all of his glory had come to her ears and she'd heard about him and and she formed great thoughts of his magnificence in her mind. What she heard. She imagined what must this kingdom be like? What must this king be like? But the Bible tells when she saw. She said the half has not been told. And brethren, with all the glories and all the beautiful truths that that emanate from this holy word, when we hear it preached, when we read it, as much as we love it, the half has not been told. One day, we shall see him as he is in all of his glory, in all of his power. But not until then, The Apostle John speaks of these things. And he says. He tells us in first John three, two, that we. Do not know what we ourselves shall be in that day. So he says, Owen says, much less can we conceive now what God is and what we shall find him to be in eternity. So, brethren, get a a glimpse of meditation, time of pondering those things about how God is so high above us. Why do we know so little of God? Owen says, first of all, it's because of the nature of God. God is invisible. He's incomprehensible. First Timothy six sixteen. First Timothy six sixteen says, who alone has immortality dwelling in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see to whom be honor and everlasting power. Amen. John says God is high. He is beyond us. He is magnificent. He is all glorious. He says, first, we know so little of God because it is God we are seeking to know. God himself has revealed himself as one who cannot be known. He calls himself invisible, incomprehensible and the like. We cannot fully know him as he is. Our progress often consists more in knowing what he is not than what he is. He is immortal and infinite, and we are only mortal, finite and limited. Who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, who no one has ever seen or can see? To him be honor and eternal dominion. His light is such that no creature can approach him. He is not seen, not because he cannot be seen, but because we cannot bear the sight of him. The light of God in whom is no darkness forbids all access to him by any creature. We who we who cannot behold the sun in its glory are too weak to bear the beams of infinite brightness. In considering the glory of God, we need to consider these things. That God is lofty. He is not like us. We see dimly. These are the truths that we must bring home to our heart. He says. 
we must consider the fact that God is God and we cannot comprehend him as we would like. There are some truths of God that he has taught us to speak of. He has even guided us in expressions of them. But when we have done so, we do not really fully understand these things. All we can do is believe and admire. We profess that we are taught that God is infinite, omnipotent, eternal, and we know the discussions about his omnipresence, his immensity, his infinity, his eternity. We have, I say, words and notions about these things, but as to the things themselves, what do we really know? What do we comprehend? Can the mind of a man do any more than be swallowed up in an infinite abyss and give itself up to what is what it cannot conceive or express? Is not our understanding brutish in the contemplation of such things? Then he talks about what of the Trinity? Who of us can explain the Trinity? What shall we say then, he says, of the Trinity or the existence of three persons in the same individual essence? This is such a mystery that it is denied by many because they cannot understand it. Is it not indeed a mystery whose every letter is mysterious? Who can declare the generation of the son, the procession of the spirit or the difference of the one from the other? Men have tried to explain by illustration, falling so far short to explain to people the Trinity, the triune God. Many people can't understand it, so they deny it or they speak against it or they build doctrines that are heretical. To try to explain something that we in our finite minds cannot understand. The person of Christ, very God, very man, two natures, unmixed in the same person. Who can explain that mystery? All these blasphemous attempts to Speak of Jesus in our day and in days past. Should be. Abominated. Because they don't come close. And, and that's why the people that come to your door and ring on your doorbell, they, they come and and they want a religion that they can understand and grapple with their and understand with their with their with their P minds. We, we do have P minds in, in relationship to God. And so they have a religion that they can understand. They know everything there is to know about God. But they believe a lie because you can't know everything about God. If we knew everything about the pure essence and entirety of God. We would be God. But we are not. We are his creatures. And so because we are his creatures, we need to take our position as lowly and humble in his sight and in his presence. God is beyond and above us. There are some truths of God that he has taught us, I say, and we speak of those things. 
But we speak of those things in a way that only we can speak of them. He says, we know little of God because it's by faith alone and not by actual sight that we know God while on earth. All men have impressions in their hearts and their, that, is in, uh, that is of God. Their reason so teaches them through the work of his creation and providence, their understanding. However, as has been seen by experience in all the ages before, is weak, low, dark, and confused. Man, on this account, has not, has not glorified God as he should, and notwithstanding all this knowledge of God, man is without God in the world. People take the knowledge in, in, in God's, the Bible says the, the heavens declare the glory of God. And men see God's creation and all that he has made, which speaks of his grandeur and, and magnificence and power. And they worship the creature rather than the creator. People worship the moon. They worship trees. They worship animals. When we look at how fearfully and wonderfully we've been made, and, 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 and those of you, I suppose, who've gone to medical school and have studied more about the human body than most of us who've just taken biology in high school, you see things and have studied things that ought to, that ought to make you usher into, into praise. If you just take the plants in your garden, And see how God has designed those to be so beautiful. It ought to make us fall down and worship God. Many go to the mountains to see the grandeur, to the ocean to see the the, the creation of God. It ought to bring us to praise and adoration of him. But all these things still only bring us a little bit of who God really is. But we thank God for faith and it's by faith and faith alone that we understand who God is. Some might argue that, yes, that's maybe we Christians or unbelievers have just a little view of God. But we are God's children and and, and maybe some might boast of, 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 of their knowledge of God and think that. What they have is beyond that. And so the arguments come. But someone may say, all this is true for unbelievers, but with those who have trusted Christ, it is different. For now man has seen God at, at any time. No man has seen God at any time, pardon me, but the only begotten of the Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him, John 1.18. And the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. 1 John 5, 20. And the illumination of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, shines upon believers. 2 Corinthians 4, 4. Yes. And God has said, let light shine. The God who has said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the, his glory in the face of Jesus Christ. Second Corinthians four, six. 
So that though we were darkness, yet we are now light in the Lord. Ephesians 5, 8. And the apostle says, we are with unveiled face. Behold the glory of the Lord. Second Corinthians 3, 18. We are now very far from being such in such darkness or at such distance from God. Our fellowship is with the father and with his son. First John 1, 3. The light of the gospel, which God has revealed to us, is not a star, but the sun. His beauty is risen upon us, and the veil is taken away from our faces. Unbelievers, perhaps some weak Christians, may yet be in some darkness, but those of any growth or considerable attainments have a clear sight and view of the face of God and Jesus Christ. Owen has an answer for that as well. He says, you want to boast about how much you know about God and that only weak Christians or unbelievers have low views or little views or, or tiny views of God? You want to boast about how much you know about God? Or he says, well, if that's the case, you should love him more than you do. The truth is that we all know enough of him to love him more than we do, to delight in him and serve him, to believe him and obey him, and to put our trust in him much beyond our current attainments. Our darkness and weakness is, so, is no excuse for our negligence and disobedience. Who can say that he has lived up to the knowledge that he has of the perfections, excellencies, and will of God. God's purpose is in giving us any knowledge of himself is that we may glorify him as God. That is that we love him, serve him, believe and obey him and give him all the honor and glory that is due from such poor sinful creatures to a sin pardoning God and creator. But we must all acknowledge that we have never thoroughly been transformed into the image of the knowledge that we have. If we had used our talents better, we might have been trusted with more. Owen saying, you want to boast about how much you know about God? Well, how does that work out in your life? How does what you know about God affect how you work on your job? How does that affect how you keep your homes, mothers? How does that affect children, how you obey your parents? The things you learn in Sunday school about God, all those... If you think you have great knowledge and more knowledge than your classmates and your friends, how does that knowledge of God affect how you live? We want to boast about our knowledge. The true test of saving knowledge is holy living, godly lives. Speaks of Old Testament shadows and things. Owen goes on. The knowledge we have of God through the revelation of Christ Jesus is exceedingly eminent and glorious. It is superior when compared with any other knowledge of God we might have attained, such as was delivered under the Old Testament. The Old Testament was a shadow of the good things to come. Christ is now in these last days revealed, the, has revealed the Father from his own bosom. 
declared his name and made known his mind and will. His counsels are far more clear, eminent, and distinct in manner than they were formerly while his people were under the authority of the law. The scriptures mentioned mostly had this in mind, the clear and transparent declaration of God and his will as seen in the gospel, expressly exalted in comparison with any other way he has revealed himself. Owen talks about there's a difference between the knowledge of believers and the knowledge of unbelievers. The difference between believers and unbelievers as to knowledge is not so much in the matter of the knowledge as in the manner of their knowing. Unbelievers, some of them may know more than and be able to say more of God, his perfections and his will than many believers. But they do not know God as they should. They do not know in the right manner. Their knowledge is not spiritual and saving, and it does not have a heavenly light. The excellence of a believer is not that he has a large apprehension of things, but that what he does understand, which may be very little, he sees in the light of the Spirit of God. He has a saving, soul-transforming light. This is what gives us communion with God. Don't be intimidated or ashamed or, 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 or saddened by some atheist who seeks to tear down your belief and has memorized more scriptures than you. All that knowledge in his big head is nothing. But that which puffed him up and made him proud. Don't be intimidated by your professors in, in school and, and others who, who think they know the Bible and, and want to argue about the, the, uh, the, the, uh, the um, things in the Bible that they think are contradictory. They're throwing stones at God. I, I remember was making this illustration. It's like, it's like somebody trying to fight a bear with a switch. Man has no power against this infinite God. But beloved, I'm seeking to encourage us that the knowledge that we do have, though it be small, if we are diligent in asking God for more and more that we might serve him more and serve him better. But that knowledge is saving knowledge. It's real knowledge. It's true knowledge. And it causes us to live in the path of righteousness, it teaches us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, that we, live, we should live soberly and righteously in this present world. The little knowledge makes bright, shining lights. The Lord took 12 disciples who were despised by the, the, the elite of their day. But the Bible says they turned the world upside down because they knew the Savior. Their knowledge may have been small. But they loved and knew the Savior. Beloved, we should be encouraged that the knowledge that we have of God is true knowledge, but it is not the full knowledge of God. Let me make a couple of applications and we'll be finished.
First, the purpose of all gospel revelation is not to unveil God in his essence or his essential glory, that we might see him in the fullness of who he is. The gospel only declares so much of him as is sufficient to be the foundation of our faith, love, obedience, and coming to him. We have enough knowledge to exercise faith he expects from us. This is what we should long for and pray for. The knowledge that gives us that foundation for our faith. You young people, don't think that you have to know everything there is to know about God. You know enough to serve him. You know enough already to turn from your sin. You know enough to know that there's only one place of refuge. There's only one place of safety from the wrath to come. And it's only to be found in the Lord Jesus Christ. And he gives this knowledge in his word and his spirit takes his word home to our hearts. And may you pray and plead with God that he would give you the knowledge of his son through the word, through the preached word. That you might have enough knowledge to exercise faith in the only savior of sinners. Beloved, we need to increase in our knowledge of God. That we might be seen using the means of grace that we might have our faith increased. We go through difficult times and, and we struggle and we, and, and, and we fret and we're anxious. Could it be because we've not sought to plumb the depths of the truths and the promises of God and fill our hearts with the truth and lay hold of those promises by faith? Why are we cast down? Have we given ourselves to those things that God has, has given us, the knowledge that he has given us, this inscripturated revelation? He has given us everything that is sufficient, I say, to achieve his redemptive purposes. So he's given us enough to know how to glorify him. He's given us enough in these 66 books that we might know how men can be saved. He gives us enough in this book to know how we ought to live and what we ought to believe. Let's lay hold of that. Secondly, brethren, Owen says, we are dull and slow of heart to receive the things that are received in his word. God uses our infirmities and weaknesses to keep us in continual dependence on him for teaching and revelation of himself out of his word. Though we do not understand the revelation in the gospel in gospel clarity, he never in this world brings any souls to the full knowledge of all in his word that might be discovered. We'll study to our dying days this holy word and we'll still not plumb its depths and exhaust its eternal truths. But God keeps us in that frame that we're dependent on him. Our first parents were independent and they departed from that, that shelter that they had under the, the holy God of creation. Let that not be said of us, brethren, but let us thank God that we are weak, but that we, but that we have one who is strong and one who will sustain us, and one who will keep us, and one who will teach us, and one who will bring us home at last. 
And in that day, when he is exalted and he gathers all his children together, we'll see him as he is. And we shall be his glorified people throughout all eternity. Isn't that a blessed thought? Meditate on that. Let's pray. Our God, we confess that you are wonderful. We confess that you are holy, holy, holy. We sing these words, Father. We say these words, but our minds cannot comprehend the true depth of what it means that you are holy. We thank you for what you have given us in your word, and we pray that we would use that to your glory and to our good. Oh, Father, we pray that you would help us in our pilgrimage and grant us much grace for the journey. And we'll be careful to give your name all the praise and all the glory. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.